Every time I preach a really hard sermon, I think to myself, that was the hardest sermon ever. And then a sermon like this comes along and I think, what the heck was I thinking? Today we're going to talk about hell. That's part of the sermon that we're going to talk about today. And um, I want to give a little program note. I'm not Eric Lyles. I'm Bob Johnston. And in his own personal hell, I think this evening, uh, Eric is sick and unable to be with us. And so I've had about two hours to work with his manuscript and some of my own writings and come up with something new. So um, I'm great to be with you guys, but a little program note on that. And um, in terms of where we are, just a little context, we're in a sermon series where we're looking at last things. We titled it Heaven and Hell, but it's last things. It's what theologians would call eschatology, how things are going to work out at the end of time and at the end of our lives. Those are the kind of concepts that we're kind of going into. And last week, I gave a 30,000-foot overview of the whole topic. If you weren't with us, you can go back and get that from our media resources on the web. Today, we're going to talk about hell. Next week, we're going to talk about heaven. And then the week after that, we're going to talk about some thoughts about who goes where. And so, you know, I got to confess, I helped organize this. I chose to preach on the overview and on heaven. So here I am preaching on hell. And I just want to tell Mary next week, I'll bring you dinner the night before. We'll get it from a super sanitized kitchen or whatever we need to do to make sure she's here for that final sermon. But um, we're going to talk about hell today. And it's um, I, the places I like to go with this is just thinking for a minute about um, why does it exist? Kind of how, how do we make sense of it? And why does it matter? Like, so what? Those are the kind of three things that, that I'd like to go at um, this morning. And, you know, the beginning place for this is we all love to talk about the good, really good stuff. We love to talk about how God loves you, and this is true, regardless of what you've done, where you've been, anything about you, he loves you to the nth degree, and there's grace, we don't have to earn anything, like there's like all these wonderful things to think about. But then we come to something like this, and we're not sure what to do with it. It's not, it's not fun to talk about. It's not like that stuff. That stuff I could talk about all day long. This is uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for me. And I go back and I think about my own spiritual development. When I was in high school, I had one of my really, really good friends, a guy named Angus. And we used to sit around and talk philosophy and theology all day long. And I can remember being back in high school having this conversation about this where we, we talked about, you know, what if somehow there was a limit to grace? What if somehow we were outside of that? I was like, well, it doesn't make any sense that we would suffer forever. And we're down in South Texas, you know, we're, we're a bunch of crude guys, but we developed this thing that we, we sort of affectionately called the cockroach prayer. It was this prayer that said, if somehow, God, I am beyond your grace, just step on me and be done with me. Like, don't let me suffer forever. Because that's the, the idea that we were holding about the way this could go. And it was sort of terrifying. Now, in truth, I don't believe that you can go beyond God's grace. So relax on that. But what do we do with this whole concept that's there in Scripture of hell? And it is a, a very uncomfortable topic. And it's always been uncomfortable for a certain number of people in the church. It's always been uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for me. I think just in recent times about how the mega pastor Rob Bell um, was thrown out of his church ultimately because he wrote a book that was entitled Love Wins. And in the end, he talks about how he really thinks hell is inconsistent with God's nature. 
And his church took it to mean that he didn't believe in hell, and they, they put him out. And I think now he speaks a lot in the Episcopal Church, but um, with a lot of grace. But the classical lines about what people think in this goes like this. Hell existence is seen as a contradiction of the Christian assertion of the final victory of God over all. If God wins everything over evil, why does this persist? And this goes back, even Origen in the third century talks about how he thought the victory over evil means all is restored. So how do we have this thing lingering on? Or second, the notion of a vindictive justice system seems unchristian. Where's the compassion of God in that? People will say, what's the point of endless suffering that goes on forever for the condemned? It seems to accomplish nothing. But if we're honest and faithful about what Scripture teaches and what the church has held since the start, we have to deal with this and focus on this, right? And I love the way that C.S. Lewis writing last century about this, a great scholar from Oxford wrote about this, and um, he draws on traditional views on this, but this is the way he sort of expresses his conflict with this. He says, there is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my power, but it has the full support of scripture and especially of our Lord's own words. It has always been held by Christendom and it has the support of reason. If a game is played, it must be possible to lose. If happiness of creatures lies in self-surrender, no one can make that surrender but himself, though many can help him make it, and he may refuse. That's what C.S. Lewis says about it. And we go to think about how Jesus, Son of God, God himself, second person of the Trinity, speaks and teaches about this concept. So whether we like it or not, it is a concept that is rooted in Scripture and in the long-term position of the church. And we may struggle with it, but there it is. And C.S. Lewis you know, writes elsewhere how he believes in it, but he really, really hopes that nobody's there, that there's zero people there. And, but Jesus did teach about it. Let me just quote a few things. We think about, for example, Luke 16, where we get this story about Lazarus who's in heaven, I mentioned it last week, looking down on the place, the person who used to beg from, who's down in this place of torment, and they have this discussion across the chasm. We think about that whole story that Jesus told. Or we think about other passages, Matthew 10, Jesus says, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. Jesus said, and if... Your hand causes you to sin. Cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. We could go on and on with different examples. Dorothy Sayers, who was one of the inklings, one of the intellectuals who ran around with C.S. Lewis there in Oxford, um, she summarizes it this way. She says, there seems to be a kind of conspiracy especially among middle-aged writers of vaguely liberal tendency to forget or conceal where the doctrine of hell comes from. One finds frequent references to the cruel and abominable medieval doctrine of hell. The doctrine of hell is not medieval. It's Christ's deliberate judgment on sin. 
We cannot repudiate hell without altogether repudiating Christ. She's saying, if you're going to stick with what Jesus says, you cannot just throw this out the door. So however uncomfortable it is, that we have to continue to look at it and figure out what we're going to do with it. And um, as I mentioned today, today's sermon is some of my own writings mixed with some of Eric's. And Eric was kind and put together all his, the resources to ask the question, well, what does the Episcopal Church believe about this doctrine? And if you think about it, you can go back to morning prayer back in the right one service. If you've been in the Episcopal Church for many decades, you may know this, but Part of the routine there is to say where we, we talk about how Jesus descended to the dead and he descend, and actually the words that's used there is he, he descended into hell. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried, and he descended into hell. Or the historical documents in the back of the prayer book says this, as Christ died for us and was buried, so also it is believed that he went down to hell. Or in the catechism in the back of the prayer book. By heaven, we mean eternal life in our enjoyment of God. By hell, we mean eternal death in our rejection of God. If Eric were here preaching today, um, this is what he said at this point. I'm going to quote him. He says, therefore, we believe that hell is where Christ descends after his death. Though he never rejected God, Christ nonetheless experiences the agony of of separation from God, from his very self. From an earthy human perspective, anytime we reject our own self, we experience a type of hell. This is why learning about who you are through inner work and prayer is also important. And once you have a firm sense of your identity, hopefully as God's beloved child, that you do not let hateful people in this world cause you to doubt who you are or reject any part of your identity. This idea that Christians believe in hell. And we can talk about very many different ways that we might think about it. But we're not able to get around the idea that it, that it does exist. And then we start to dig deeper now for a minute and begin to ask, how do we make sense of it? How do we begin to understand what is said about it? And um, as we start that, I want to say a, couple th- a few things about some of the words that are used in Scripture for the notion of hell. We may begin to think first about the Greek word Hades. It's sometimes translated as hell in English, um, but it actually refers to a place of the dead. That's what it means. It's not necessarily a place that is joined with torture or torment of the wicked. And a similar um, concept within Hebrew, the Sheol, is an Old Testament concept that goes after the same kind of thing. It was a place of darkness it was a place of gloom, but not torment, at least, at least not initially within Hebrew thought. Later, the Greek term Hades comes to include a place of punishment and torture and all that. And we get the gospel reading that I mentioned a little while ago from Luke 16, where you have Lazarus in this place that's great, and you've got his, the person he used to beg from who's down being tormented. That's a story Jesus told. And we get this whole notion about what happens when Jesus dies and, we, and, he, and it's before the resurrection and we get how scripture says that he descended into hell. And that's how we said it in the traditional translation of the, of the Apostles' Creed and the Athanasian Creed. What does that mean? 
Where do we go with that? These notions, um, we've got to place with them the contrast of the Greek word Gehenna, which is, which is uh, the word that's ordained for a place of punishment for the wicked after death. And here the imagery used is um, a notion of the unquenchable fire. Some of our YouTube fans will get that word, but it's this idea that it's, it's a place for the lost. And it's a place of damnation, which in Latin goes from the word loss. That's what it means. The final judgment scene in Matthew uh, 25, Jesus says to the condemned, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire. And it's a horrible thought. I don't like that thought. I, don't, I just don't see any purpose of it. And it's hard for me to take. But I want to say two different things that I think um, provide for us maybe a little bit of comfort as we think about what that, with the notion about what that is. The first one of those is to think about who's there, who is actually in that place. And we'll say more about this in the final week to give you some different things to think about. But you think about this, God desires that everyone should be saved. He, we know that. Scripture teaches that. He wants everyone to be saved. And still, he doesn't force their wills. And if you're going to have free will, you have to have a choice. So he respects the dignity of people and he lets them decide. So hell is for those who willfully choose, basically, to turn away and essentially to be there in a place of his absence. And it's hard to know if someone has done all this in, in a way to the end that that's where they're going to end up being. But it's a place of separation. And that's the key aspect of it. One of the most authoritative groups of theologians in the world, um, they define hell this way. They say that this, it's a state of definitive self-exclusion from communion with God and the blessed. And I love the way that that's what they say. It's self-exclusion. Like, right, like if you choose to resist all the way to the very end, and who knows how far grace is going to go, I certainly don't. But at the end of the day, the people who are there are the ones who have self-excluded, who've decided that that's what they want. And so I think that provides some level of comfort in just thinking about that. So this isn't like something that's whammed and bow, it's forced on you. The second thing is, that gives comfort in this is that it's part of the mystery that's involved with this. And how there's so much appeal when we talk about hell to metaphor and to um, the mystery of it and the different thoughts that go along with it that require our imagination. And um, I want to go back to how this word Gehenna um, propagates. It's going to ultimately be picked up by Dante and go into all these different kinds of places. But the word itself in Greek um, is derived from a Hebrew word for the Valley of Hinnon. It's a valley near Jerusalem that in early, I'm going to just read this part. In early Jewish history, it was a place where some kings of Judah engaged in forbidden religious practices, including human sacrifice by fire. Because of this, Jeremiah spoke of the impending judgment and King Josiah put it into the place by destroying the high place there. Scholars believe that these associations with the fiery destruction and judgment led to the word Gehenna becoming metaphorically used for a place of hell and eternal damnation and this just ongoing burning unquenchable fire. So we probably have a metaphor from the very beginning. 
So in everything we read, we like the very roots, like it doesn't just morph later. It's probably a metaphor from the very, very beginning. So all these other kinds of descriptions, the fire and brimstone, the unquenchable fire, the lake of fire, place of darkness, place of separation, place of death, place of destruction, exclusion from the presence of God, the debt to pay. These are all images of trying to describe a place you don't want to be. But there's a lot of metaphor and mystery in how it all gets presented. But all of that we still have to say at the end of the day that it's language that Jesus used and that Jesus taught about. And so as awkward and as uncomfortable as it may be, it's one of those things we just kind of have to sit with. There are things I wish I didn't have to believe or engage, but, but this is one of those. And along with that, I think we have to ask, to what extent is this just an oratory um, device? Where maybe what Jesus really wants more than anything is just to call people to really think about things, to really stop the rat race and to think about the things that matter in the, in the eternal perspective in the long term. Um, Jesus talks about, he gets asked, will those who are saved be few? And Jesus didn't really answer that question straight up, but he said this. He said, strive to enter by the narrow door. Like his intent is put your effort in to go to that place. So I wonder if it isn't just a device that's, call, that's to call us in a profound way. I don't know. There are lots of mystery here. Jesus talks about it. The church has believed it. We're called to believe it. It's okay to struggle with it. I want to begin to wind things up by maybe trying to summarize a few things uh, about this. The Christian position is that hell really does exist. It is a thing. We believe it exists, and while it exists, the nature of it is not known with great precision. We don't know like the full extent to which it's an oratory thing, to which it's a mystery, to which it's a symbol, or what its nature is in that way. But it has this powerful attraction, you know, we have this powerful attraction of grace and love, but we also have to hold this idea that's out there, and it impacts our living faith. I think it's meant to encourage a strong holding to the eternal order, but I invite you to engage it and to think about what it might mean and how seriously Jesus is calling us to a deeper place and reflect on things this way. I like the way that C.S. Lewis says, I have to believe in it, but I hope nobody's there. And maybe some of this also involves our own personal hell. I'm going to end today with reading the conclusion to Eric's sermon that he was going to preach had he not been in his own personal hell this morning, um, and then end with a prayer that he wrote. So this is Eric's conclusion to his sermon. The 20th century theologian and Catholic priest Hans von Balthasar has much to say about the importance of Holy Saturday when Jesus descends into hell and Christ's work in his descent. Balthasar stresses Christ's solidarity with the dead, his finding himself in a situation of total self-estrangement and alienation from the Father. For both Balthasar, the descent solves the problem of theodicy, which is the, the question of why bad things happen to good people. By showing us the conditions on which God accepted our foreknown abuse of freedom, namely God's own plan to take unto himself our self-damnation in hell. 
according to von Balthasar, Christ preaches in Hades and gives expression to the fact that the righteous one dies for the unrighteous, even for those who are lost and without hope. His atoning death has brought salvation. And in rising from the dead, Christ leaves behind him Hades, that is the state in which humanity is cut off from access to God. But by virtue of his deepest Trinitarian experience, he takes hell with him as the expression of his power to dispose as judge the everlasting salvation or the everlasting loss of man. Said another way, because Christ's descent on Holy Saturday, there is no hell in which you can find yourself where Christ has not already been and where Christ will not meet you and call you back to the love of God. As we ponder the end of time and heaven and hell during this sermon series, always remember this. There is no hell you can find yourself in where Christ has not already descended and where he has the power and the will to call you back into the arms of loving God. He always has that power. Let us pray. Lord, save us from images, thoughts, literature, film, artwork that draws our attention away from your saving grace and onto thoughts of torment and suffering. Help us always put our faith in your grace and love, inviting every person we encounter into his transforming relationship with you. Be with those who are currently suffering in hell, hells of their own making and give us power to assist you in calling them back to themselves and to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.